poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG has two WSOP gold bracelets, has cashed for $3.5 million in live MTTs, and is one of the coolest and most genuine humans I've ever had the pleasure of getting to know, Brandon Shaq Harris. So I have a New Year's lesson I want to share with you before you dive into today's episode. I took some time off from my usual slate of podcasts throughout the holidays and recorded just a handful of episodes. Around mid-December, when this conversation was originally recorded, my burning desire for cranking out tons of weekly episodes was starting to wane. The story I told myself was that the CPG Wolf Project needed most of my waking energy, and anything that took away from that was an unnecessary distraction. And I believed that story right up until the moment I pressed record with Brandon Jack Harris. As I found myself feeling fully present and totally immersed in his story, I was reminded of the core reason why CPG is my passion project. Having conversations with folks like Brandon makes me feel more alive, lights me up on the inside, and genuinely makes my day. And so before you hear the story about the time Brandon was almost a member of the band Muse, the unanticipated way his poker journey began, or the counterintuitive method he uses to improve his poker skills, I just wanted to share with you that lesson. Remember to make time in your life to do the things that make you feel alive inside, even if your brain and central nervous system push back. Life's too short and precious to do anything otherwise. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you an amazing poker player and even more amazing human being, the great Brandon Shaq Harris. Brandon, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing, man? Thanks, Brad. Doing good. A little sleepy, a little sore. A uh, little, little sore? What are we sore from? Um, getting my ass beat every day in, in Muay Thai, trying to get my cardio back to speed and get where get back to where I was before World Series started. So kind of overdoing it. My ribs are really bruised today. <laughs> like my, my legs are fucked up from kicking and being kicked and um, chipped a tooth. I lost my, uh, I lost my mouth guard uh, having a new one uh, molded, but... And get off easy so a little damage but nothing like i have good enough overbite that it kind of hides like the chip so <laughs> things are working out all right yeah yeah so so, so you're damaged. okay um yeah i, I certainly want to get into the the training aspect yeah. of of your journey because um i know that you visited tristar gym um in your time in canada and being you know a big mma fan uh, that is the gym that I don't know if GSP still trains there, but I know that he did train there on a regular basis for a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, at the time, uh, he had, uh, falling out with the UFC and was on hiatus, but 
the guys in the gym had made it pretty clear that he was looking to continue to compete that he was just was got uh he was overwhelmed by a bunch of stuff i didn't know him personally this is just what i heard he was he was just overwhelmed by a bunch of things and um and a lack of a lack of flexibility i think within the ufc and and just kind of like went away for a bit um so he wasn't around when i was around his there was a guy named david loazzo uh who uh, i don't want to mess up his credentials or whatever but he's really old school and he was one of his training partners and befriended him a little bit until i overstepped my boundaries trying to <laughs> uh try, like trying to offer some criticism that like was unwarranted but like uh i don't know it's whatever I, some people you know some people are i hadn't really established my position in this gym yet but we were talking a lot and talking about like theory a lot or whatever and then he was talking about how he was taking his comeback seriously because he had been out for a bit and he was doing some sparring like i guess maybe joking sparring or whatever and I I offered a reminder and he didn't appreciate my reminder and I'm like oops <laughs> I fucked this one up so but it, it was a fun time there it was in like I, I was there in like January I moved to Montreal after Black Friday happened I was um, staying with Martin Bradstreet uh, who was Magic Ninja Online like epic PLO guy and now he's like immersed in the VR space he was one of the guys on that documentary um Remember that documentary with Danielle Anderson and, uh, and Martin and that talked about Black Friday and it, there was a I don't. personal right too. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I, that was ever on my radar for some reason. Oh man, it's like right on the tip of my tongue too. But You'll, you'll um, think of it at some point in the conversation, I'm sure. Yeah, so I moved up there to, to give online poker a shot after Black Friday. Having, but it was fucking freezing. I got from Chicago. Chicago is cold, but Montreal is like blistering. So, uh, traveling in the snow to TriStar, and their bags are like granite. They have like duct tape around all their heavy bags, so it's like kicking a slab of bricks. And then their floors are like this slate. Um, and my feet are pretty conditioned, and you turn your feet a lot when you kick. And as soon as I turn my feet on on this slab, like. The whole bottom of my feet like ripped off and it's like blood everywhere it's it's oh it pretty gnarly yeah it's great it was an interesting time yeah all, all that stuff is by design for the uh, gym yeah it's got to be um Safaraz didn't i don't do much ground stuff so it didn't work with him he just told me to clean up the blood and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the extent of the interaction oh, uh and, oh yeah and, like there was like some of the uh some of the guys from the UFC content uh what's it called the the ultimate fighter yeah yeah the ultimate fighter that they, they were there and I asked if this was normal and and one of the guys was like yeah if you got bitch feet and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh so yeah I think by design and <laughs> I learned my place pretty quickly um typically like gyms are very welcoming and uh and I felt like I wasn't interested in the idea of fighting ever. I'm like not a violent person. And I joined, I joined one because I was just gaining some weight playing online pokers before I played live. One opened up across the street. And I really started enjoying the theory of it. Um, the more mm-hmm. limbs you incorporate, the more like that applies. But, when you say theory, like what do you mean by that as it relates to training? 
Well, okay, there are a lot of parallels when it comes to uh, poker and fighting, really. And poker, I, I, okay, I don't want to get like super tangential, but like balance is a very important thing. You have to make sure like, you know, in, in poker you have your ranges and they need to be, they need to look nice. And then you have your bet sizing, which needs to be like uniform. It's the same thing with fighting. Like your punches come from the same place. It's called chambering your punches, same with your kicks. For the most part, they look you their um, the way your hand, your arms, and your legs are positioned before you either punch or kick. Uh, they look very uniform, and they need to be in this specific uh, position in order to generate the most force. So everything's very balanced that way. Um, and then, and then there's making mixing up your uh, just balancing all your looks. Uh, shoot an overhand throw or shoot a takedown uh, and then fake a takedown, shoot an overhand or um, switch kick and then do a switch kick stance and then throw a left hook right cross or do a switch kick stance and then switch again and like throw just a lot of like uh, disguise and making sure everything looks uniform that uh, understanding poker gives you, uh, it prepares you for. On top of that, there is, there are a lot of similarities. The start of poker, not a lot of resources Same with UFC and it was like sumo guy against like wrestling guy. There weren't weight classes. Uh, online poker expedited the evolution of the theory. Uh, so the learning curve uh, went by a lot quicker. You know, you get more hands per hour and until like VR expedites that for fighting where you can just sit in a basement and rep like counters to counters all night long without needing like manual people holding mitts and whatever online poker theory will be like further ahead. So it's been kind of a window into where fighting should go. I'm not really into like the whole GTO and exploitative, like I'm not super into like GTO in general or whatever. I, I think it's kind of uh, embellished uh, an embellished concept or whatever, but like having, why do you think that? I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I haven't like, I haven't written like a thesis on exactly why I feel this way, I suppose, but like not everybody's playing perfectly. We're not going to be able to play perfectly. Like there's just so much room for, for exploit in general. Uh, I just think like, being balanced and and having a solid approach and good fundamentals and understanding the math of certain depths like push like like call shove stuff i guess is really important and it's nice to see what computers are doing and stuff and help to help you like develop strat strategies or whatever but i think the idea of like being gto or like i don't know i just think it's kind of like it's just mostly a buzzword um and a, and and an ideology which makes a lot of sense and, uh, but like, nobody's playing like theoretically optimal, all these things, et cetera. And within fighting, I guess there's a guy named Rory McDonald who fought out of TriStar and he wouldn't watch anybody's tape and he would just try to have a well-rounded approach. And, and he, he'd just say like, good luck to you guys. But, and it, it worked out all right, but like the evolution of fighting is 
so far behind where the evolution of poker is and we're you know nowhere close to like some solved situation there's no point not watching tape and exploiting people's leaks so but but like these concepts exist and i'm sure like data mining within fighting will be you know we'll take fighting to the next level and vr will take fighting to the next level i think and there are more resources now than there ever were so i was talking to some of my coaches and they were telling me how long it used to take to level up in belts and how much easier it is now because you know just the amount of resources that are available and these things so yeah that's I, there are two brothers that fought in the UFC. Uh, I think Dan Miller and what's Dan Miller's brother's name? I can't think of it right now. But I remember in an interview, he said a similar thing to what you just said about Rory, that he doesn't watch tape of his opponent fighting. And I remember thinking like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why Why would you handicap yourself like that? Yeah. It, I just don't understand. Um, the same concept in poker applies in that you you're playing against a human being first and foremost, and every human being that I've played against, uh, they have tendencies, they have flaws, they have uh, areas where they are exploitable. And to just kind of like only pay attention to what you're doing, right? Where it's like, oh, Solver wants me to do X, Y, or Z, or I think that's what Solver wants me to do, and not pay attention to like what your opponents are doing, to me is just, kind of silly and doesn't really make any sense to me, um, both at the poker table and with fighting. So I, I believe that you are right that, well, actually I'll take it a step further and in that there will never be a perfect poker player. As long as we're operating, um, from a level playing field, right? Unless there's somehow getting information from some external source that helps to guide their decisions. There just aren't going to be optimal poker players. And like, that's okay. You know, that that's a good thing for the game. And it just reinforces to me that, okay, like you're playing against other humans. And, you know, I, I was for a long time in the same boat as you, especially when the solvers first became like, um, a big deal. People started treating them kind of like the gospel. I remember thinking like, yeah, but like I can look at a solver output and like nobody's ever playing like this ever. So how much can I trust um, the responses? So anyway, long way of me saying that, yes, I think that solvers are powerful. They're tools that have uh, some good applications, but they're not the end all be all as it relates to, you know, poker strategy, studying frameworks for improving very quickly or stuff like that. Yeah. I appreciate hearing your thoughts there and agree. I think great to help you, especially if you're not an inherently creative person, you know, start seeing some ideas that, um, kind of expand outside of your comfort zone, which is a drag for me because, Fundamentally, I would say, you know, I, I probably suck a lot and uh, and creativity has kind of been what's kept me afloat, really. So seeing people with better, you know, a better foundation implementing some of the stuff that I feel set me apart from other people um, was really frustrating for me. <laughs> has been really frustrating, but it's fine. You know, it just pushes you to work harder on the things that you're not so good at. I think there are still 
areas to explore um, where following your curiosity can yield lots of fruit. Like I, I think there's still a lot of fertile ground for following your curiosity as a poker player. And, um, you know, some things, some things just kind of need to be done in a certain way, I think, especially as it relates to like online six max, no limit, hold them cash. But again, there, there are areas where like you can do different things early in the decision tree that mess people up to where they don't really know what the appropriate response is. And I mean, it's pretty cool seeing that given how far, um, I guess how far the perception of people that poker is right now. Yeah, for sure. Do you, do you play many of the other games or? I do not know. I'm basically no limit hold'em guy, six max. Uh, I've played a lot of live no limit hold'em. I have dabbled in PLO. Um, I've actually studied PLO quite a bit, but I've never just kind of gone for it. Um, when you uh, when you approach a new format or a new game like PLO, what's how what's your style usually like? So that's changed over the past year, I guess, um, in doing deep dives and studying data and really just thinking about poker at like a basic level of like what is happening in this game. Like if I were to start learning a new game, uh, you know, the first thing that I would learn is I would find the tools on like the early decision tree decisions, right? So like basically preflop, like what's sort of happening here preflop, what is optimal or theoretically solid play supposed to look like. Um, and then I would start thinking about how the equities run in each given game, how the game is constructed, a series of bets, um, how close to the equities run, how often should I be calling, how often should I be raising, those sorts of things. I think that's pretty much how I would approach any poker game is like, what's the equity distribution? Um, what do the pot odds look like when facing bets uh, on various streets? And how do I start out playing this game? <laughs> like, well, what's the first thing that I'm supposed to do? Fundamentally, what hand do I play from under the gun, right? That seems to be mm -hmm. like pri my first priority. Have you always looked at resources or did you, were there times where you just kind of like hopped in? And I've always, I, I'm, a, I'm a battler, I think. Um, I've always kind of just hopped in. Like, I think that, especially in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, just kind of like a lone wolf type of player who's sort of thinking about the game and studying the game on, on his own. Um, and I think that was just to my detriment to the most part, like I, for the most part, I think that I could have learned much quicker had I um, <laughs> had more humility surrounded myself with people who are immersed in the game. Oh, another thing that I would do when starting a new game is I would hire a coach kind of straight away. Once I understood the fundamentals of like how the equities run and just the fundamental stuff of the game, I would hire somebody who's operating at a much higher level than me and just pay them whatever I've got to pay them um, to get me up to speed as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah, that all makes sense. I think I would advocate that for people as well typically have didn't didn't go that route but <laughs> i think i think that's definitely a productive methodology for well, sure you learn from at least in my experience you learn from your mistakes and if you say you ask yourself like if i could do it over again what would i do knowing what i know now um that's that's what i would do um yeah 
I think it's, I think it's, uh, I think it can kind of be subjective depending on what time period you're in. Um, like for me, I would join new game and then play every hand and then get myself in all, all the awkward spots and then try to think of as many creative ways to do certain things as I can. Um, and then kind of scale back a little bit and just see, see what it looked like, uh, like when you're in the weeds, um, like as much as possible, again, just trying to play on creativity being something that that's good for me. And I, I'm curious, like how much, I guess you can't like shake your roots. So I suppose if I started with coaching initially, like my creativity would kind of naturally settle in still. Um, I think part of me would have worried that it would, it wouldn't have been as fun to learn, which is, which is how I kind of approach music in general. Like, I don't, I don't want to have a teacher because they make you just do skills. And when you suck, like you want to do what's fun to, to get through the suck. And then eventually you're like, okay, let's learn some theory. Like now, now I'm in, you know, um, the sunk cost has set in long enough, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You'll do like the arduous shit. Um, but yeah. You, you said something that uh, there that I, you know, is a greatness bomb and is pretty profound, I think, in just kind of getting yourself in the weeds, playing all the hands, getting yourself in the uncomfortable situations. I mean, this is something that like, as homework for some of my private coaching students, I've assigned them like to play an hour where they just VPIP every hand, right? Just like play every single hand, nice. like, and come back to me with what you learn, right? Like, let's just do this at like a lower stake where it doesn't really matter um, what the end result is. Because one reason why I have them do this is to, is basically kind of like, uh, market research for the weaker players in the pool to kind of understand why they do what they do and why they have specific tendencies that relate from playing way too many hands. And then also kind of like what you can get away with when you're in like an anonymous player pool and people think that, you know, they just think that you're a massive whale when the reality is you're just playing every hand pre-flop, but then your post-flop strategy is, is pretty good, right? Um, so anyway, I, I'm certainly a big believer in exploring curiosity, doing things that like make you uncomfortable. A, a big thing that happens quite often is, you know, somebody will say they'll bet the turn and I'll ask why they bet the turn. And the reason they bet the turn is because they don't want to face a bet on the river. And it's like, you know, you, you do this, you do this as some sort of like defense mechanism, but the reality is like, poker is not comfortable and you have to face the bet on the river. And if you never get a rep facing that bet on the river, you just naturally suck in that spot. So you have to, you have to engage in being out of your comfort zone so that you can learn how to navigate that street much better. And the only way to, the only way to get reps is to get yourself in that position and, you know, suck at it for a while, but then eventually upgrade your skills. So like for the podcast listener, that's the thing that I highly recommend is like, just because something makes you uncomfortable in poker doesn't mean that it's not the right thing and doesn't mean it's something that um, you ought to gloss over. Like you, you have to explore those nodes because that's how you get better. You get better by pushing the boundaries of your comfort zone. Yeah, totally agree. I would, 
I would advocate taking, yeah, I think playing full boards is just really important in general, like getting comfortable with playing really full boards and playing really deep, especially in some of the other games. Um, and people have gotten a lot better at it, but like a game like PLO where every, every card that comes out drastically typically changes the texture of, or can drastically change the texture of, of a board, people freak out and, and, and try to shovel all the money in as, as quickly as possible before something scary happens, you know what I mean? And um, finding your comfort, I guess, in just letting all the card, cards come is, is a pretty freeing feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I like that approach. It would be pretty fun to do like a, some kind of Twitch thing. Like the, remember the, was it Melanie Weisner who did like the whole cards covered thing, uh, play a tournament with her whole cards covered? I think that was Annette Obersod. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Annette, sorry. Forgive me. Um, I appreciate you. It's a while ago. It's a while yeah, ago. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, the other one lady who played poker. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Um, so, but yeah, very cool. And I think it'd be fun to jump on Twitch and uh, and like just cover, like play some mixed games, cover all your down cards up and just play with like the information out there. I don't know. Something like that seems, seems really fun to me. That seems like a, a way that would be fun to get on Twitch or something. But yeah, I love it. I'm glad you do that. It's great. It has to be a game that's not No Limit Hold'em, or maybe it doesn't have to be, but I tried that when I was... Uh, I tried that for a little while, covering my whole cards and playing yeah. like a session of No Limit uh, without knowing what I had. And um, my problem was like i just wanted to be involved every hand <laughs> like, yeah, yeah every every spot looks like a good three betting opportunity or like a good open raise opportunity um it's really difficult to not play hands when i'm doing that which is not intuitive you'd think that you'd be more selective but like the way that i made i i just want to play all the hands when i don't know what i have yeah it sounds like you're speaking my language they're, they're <laughs> like we would play uh I would go to the horseshoe and we would play the mixed game and then the mixed game would eventually break. And sometimes uh, I'd drop, drop to like the, the small mixed game and just for like to decompress, it was like really small. It was, you know, like $2, $4, something like that. And just cover my head with my beanie and, and play like completely, <laughs> completely blind. Like someone would tell me about like, the flop. It's just like, I don't know. That was there was just like decompression time. It was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and it's fun to see who gets like bent at, like, this is obviously very different from what you're talking about, but it reminds me of like when you would decompress playing on like full tilt or whatever and jump in like the $10 buy-in games and like go all in. And then like some people would like just leave. They get like, they get like, yeah, like really butthurt about, it. <laughs> I don't know. They'd be like, you're ruining the game. I <laughs> How? I don't know. That yeah. was so much fun. Just oh, I, every hand and see what, see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I certainly remember those days of party poker, um, like battling at 1K and L and then like just diving into 25 and L and just like ripping every hand over and over and over and over again. People do get really angry. Um, they get really upset and then uh, stacks get really big. <laughs> Like the depth gets really big really quickly when you're just jamming every single hand. Um, but yeah, great, great spot to like, you know, blow 50 to a hundred dollars and just have a lot of fun in the meantime. Did you see the reverse bomb hunting thing back in the day mm -mm. where this is like, 
this one dude would go uh he would do that at like the small stakes and then he would move up levels and people would like follow him and he'd keep doing it and then he just like play then he'd just start playing really bad instead of going all in he just start playing like horribly and then and people would keep following him up and eventually like all the people would be like really shot taking at like 10 20 or whatever and he'd just start playing good and he'd destroy everybody <laughs> it was like there's a thread on two plus two called like reverse bomb hunting or something like that so you just like play abysmally and then like move up stakes and then eventually like people would be out of their comfort zone and just destroy their bankroll <laughs> oh, genius. and, and I, i'm sure like as soon as they get stuck like a dime and they're, yeah, they're normally in. they're in like they're yeah. they're just sunk cost is in full effect and they're just they're in it until their bank balance is zero yeah um, yeah, you heard a lot of feelings, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Um, let's go back to the beginning. You know, we, we kind of jumped into this head first. Uh, tell me about your your journey into the world of poker. Like, what does that look like for you? Um, I'll try to condense it a little bit just because my friends are probably the only people who feel like listening to me anymore. <laughs> and like, and they've heard this story of it. Um, I was, I was working on a lot of music at the time, um, starting when I was probably 13, I started getting really into music and then I figured that was going to be my industry. Um, and then around, I, I had no interest in poker, like same with fighting. It's just so weird. Like these assholes wearing sunglasses indoors, like, uh, hitting on a cocktail, you know, like, uh, a lot of. A lot of uh, fair, fair stereotyping, but you know, not one hundred percent the picture, obviously, um, and which is how I felt with fighting too. Like just uh, alpha bro assholes, like you just want to like beat people up and blah blah blah. You know, um, I think I my, I had a lot of associations with like the more negative aspects of these environments, but uh, it wasn't on my radar. Anyways, I was working on a lot of music and. Um, I was pretty integrated into um, like the scene in the genres that I liked and uh, it wasn't anything to meet bands anymore and I was working pretty hard at the at this point I'm uh, closer to like 20. Um, I was working like eight to ten hours a day in piano and I, I knew I couldn't be like a concert pianist but I figured I could be one of the better like classical pianists in like aggressive rock. Um, I also like, I was doing a lot of like ambient stuff too. And uh, just stuff that puts you in like some kind of headspace, like a moodier one or um, I like heavy stuff, but it has to be like melodic, these kind of things. Uh, so I was, I was working really hard on, on piano, especially at the time. And um, someone showed me uh, this band Muse. Uh, Person, a person I was working uh, who was working with uh, another band I was helping suggested them to me and at the time they weren't doing like pop stuff they were like they were kind of doing a lot of flailing and rock music and like uh, they had a lot of like classical stuff in there too and um, it was I thought it was fucking great and I, I wound up going to one of their shows and 
trying to find like the semi-succinct version of this without like glossing over too many details. But uh, I showed up with a keyboard because I was practicing a lot and I'm an idiot. And I, I, when I, when I see a show, I want to be like, first, I want to be at the stage. I want, I want to be like, I want, I want the, the immersion uh, experience, the immersive experience, I guess. Uh, and, and the project I was working on was trying to do the same thing. I, I guess I was trying to make it like an immersion um, of all, all the senses. Um, there'd be like a progression of smells that I would associate with like a block of songs, like maybe chimney smoke for this one. And then it would change to something else. And just a lot of like, I just wanted it to be like a sensory overload kind of situation. Um, so I'm practicing keyboard while I'm waiting in line and uh, their bus pulls up and they see this. And then at the end of the show, they do a meet and greet. I go talk to their singer at the end, Matt, thank him for incorporating like classical into, into rock, ask him about this band I was friends with. It's this cello rock band. It's like these three women called Ras it was Rasputina. They've gone through a lot of lineups, but back then it's like these three women and they would dress up in like Victorian clothes and um, they had uh, pickups hooked up to their cello. So they would, um, it would be like really pretty and classical and they would hit the distortion pedal and just kind of like rock out. And, you know, there, there are other bands like Apocalypse Go have done that with like Metallica songs and these kind of things, but they're around back then. Um, and all their songs were like really thematic and, uh darker and dealt with like kind of darker history and it was just really kind of interesting especially when you like that kind of immersive experience you know it's like a big it's all a big story so felt like they might like it so i brought this band up with them or with matt um and then i have a tattoo of a chopin piece on the inside of my arm or part of it he asked me about that i told him what piece it was and he's like oh it's one of my favorite pieces whatever um so i tell him about you know let them do their thing. I don't want to like take up all their time or whatever. I'm going to go wait outside my, my girlfriend. Uh, we were in Detroit at the time and she didn't just didn't want to be out. So she's going to come pick me up. Said I'd be outside if they felt like talking anymore or whatever, go stand outside, wait for her. Matt sees me, asked me if I want to go to the, to a bar with them, talk a little bit. And, um, <clears throat> we were kind of talking about the music we're working on. They're talking about making their, their next record, like a little, like bigger, I guess, uh, more harmonizing and just a little more epic, I guess, more of a symphony thing kind of situation, I guess, if you're looking at it um, in classical terms. And uh, asked them if they're gonna have a fourth member or if they're just gonna be using more, uh, more of these pedals called MIDI pedals, I guess, which like Matt plays piano and guitar at the same time, you can't do both, so when you need to play both things at the same time. And it sounds like they're going to be doing a lot of that in this next record, because it's supposed to be like just way bigger. Maybe to be triggering like a MIDI pedal to play the guitar part while he plays piano or whatever. He said like, they want to, they're going to find a person. I asked him like what they were looking for. Just like totally curious, totally happy to be doing my own thing. Uh, and he's like, well, you, and he's like, we, you know, pay real good and you see the world and I really believe in fate and all these kind of things. And here you are, I don't want to have to go looking for somebody, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and I, I did not sleep that night. I was like, well, uh, you know, let's just keep in touch and see how that goes. And, uh, I held my, uh, like, I kept it cool for like a day, you know? Um, and then they invited us to go see a few more shows 
uh, the next day he had asked me if I'd ever played poker and that's what the other guys were doing saying that the other, the other guys were really reluctant to have a fourth member. They'd been a three piece for so long and, uh, and, and they all played poker after, after, after the shows usually. And Matt was like really into it. And that was, I'm pretty sure like right after the, the boom for the moneymaker, um, when, and, uh, he was super excited about winning a hundred dollar pot off, uh, Robert Smith from the cure or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, I never played. So we're in the back of the tour bus and he's showing me this like Gregorian chant music and we're like just kind of exchanging life stories and playing heads up, no limit. And I don't remember anything about it. I'm sure it was horrific. Um, yeah. So that's how I learned poker. And then, or that's how I learned the rules to poker. And then I went home and figured while I, while I worked on learning all their songs, I would learn poker since that's what the other guys, you know, that was their like bonding aesthetic. And I'm, I didn't want them to see me as somebody trying to infiltrate their band. Like, you know, if things worked out that way, I like, I mean, and I'm very sincere about that. Like I, I, uh, I don't want to like get really tangential, but like the, the being fake friends and like doing things to ingratiate yourself to people in order to get in like this game or that game. I just like, it makes me like fucking sick, but you know, you want the people you like, you want their friends and their family to like you, you know, it should be how it is. You know, you want the people you love and I'm not saying like this is whatever, but um, I obviously want this person who, I wish to be friends with friends to enjoy my company as well. So, uh, yeah, I went home and started working on, on these things. And then, um, I got the run around for a while, uh, with the muse stuff. I just pretty basically got ghosted and then, uh, and, it, and it, it was frustrating because I would see an interview and, and someone would be like, Hey, have you ever thought about having a fourth member? And they'd be like, yeah, you know, we met this guy in America and it seemed like blah, blah, blah. Like, well, no one's talking to me and I'm just sitting there. I'm learning all their shit. I'm learning how to play some of their songs like upside down and stuff. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm like just really trying to, I want to do some like impressive stuff or whatever. And uh, eventually I needed answers. I, they played this tour with the cure. Um, it's called the Curiosa festival. Saw their drummer and the drummer's like, Oh, Hey man, what, you know, what's going on. It's good to see you. Like come hang out afterwards thought that was a good sign. And then like, long story short, they told me to wait by a tree for them to come get me. And no one, like nobody came. And I just like sat alone at like at this tree, like an asshole for a while. And then I'm like, fuck these guys. And, uh, I think a year and a half passed. They played Chicago. My roommate was really into them at the time. He's like, dude, Muse is playing down the street. You should come. I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> um, you're like, still no. by the tree a year and yeah, a half. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm locked in the fucking tree forever. Um, I'm locked in the tree of eternity. Um, I, I had a, I, I worked on this really difficult Chopin piece, and at some point, I sent it to the guy who who manages them. He's also Matt's best friend, and he runs their uh, official website. His name's Tom. Really nice guy. So a while ago, I sent him like this piece, and. Uh, okay so i go to the show tom sees me he's like hey dude you know you should come hang out afterwards i'm like yeah, yeah whatever show happens afterwards tom finds me takes me backstage 
Matt sees me. He's like, oh, there he is. And he comes and gives me, like, oh, I saw that piano piece you did, blah, 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 all this shit, whatever. And like a year and a half has passed since like our first conversation. I'm just like, what is going on with these people? And he, he's like, we're going to a, a hotel. Uh, we're, go- we're going to a hotel afterwards. You, you, you know, you and your, your buddy should come hang out for a bit and whatever. So I'm like, okay, this is good. I show up. We've got some stuff we need to talk about. And I don't like, I can, I'm a big boy. I can handle rejection. I've got my own thing working for me. I just hate like sitting around in limbo, not knowing what I'm doing with myself. I need answers so I can move on with my life. Uh, and um, I see him. I'm like, hey, dude, do you want to talk? And he's like, oh, we're all talking. Just hang out. And I'm like, dude, fuck. So a couple hours pass. I'm over it. I go say bye. Uh, he's like, no, let's go talk. And, and he's like, we played uh, our biggest show ever in Glastonbury and uh, uh, our drummer's dad died and it really brought us closer. It's like a three piece, et cetera. Um, you know, I didn't know what to tell you. And I'm like, look, man, I'm not trying to infiltrate your band. I've got my own thing going on. I'm really happy doing my own thing. It's just nice to meet people that you get along with uh, to bounce ideas off of. He's like, yeah, you know, well, no matter what, like, we really want to try, we want to try you out and see, we're going to record New York. I just, you know, we'll fly you down and just see how that works out. And I'm like, no big deal. Let's just keep things cool. Let's, this is like the very condensed version of like a, you know, a few hour long conversation. And uh, so that seemed to have gone well. And then um, I think uh, I sent a couple emails over the course of a few months after that, just didn't hear anything. And then, uh, and I like I stopped playing music. I was mostly playing poker. I was like really uh, I don't know. I didn't know how to handle that because it wasn't something that I, I went after. It was something that was like offered to me. And then I'm still saying like, don't worry about it, dude. Like I've got my own thing. Just want to know what I'm doing with my time. And like the carrots getting kind of like dangled in front of me. And like this is not an experience that I'm familiar with. Uh, so I, I don't, I didn't like, you know, jump back on the horse, I guess. I just like stopped playing music and just played more poker. And, uh, I found out they're recording their new record. I heard the song they're releasing, which was the song called super massive black hole or whatever, which was like really like Prince meets muse kind of thing. Like a, definitely a big departure into what they normally do. I, I, I like thought it was a joke, honestly, at the time. <laughs> Um, uh, and, um, and then they announced their new keyboardist, so-and-so, um, this dude who was in a band that they grew up like admiring the guy filled in for their basis after their basis broke his arm or something like that during the cure, uh, tour. And I'm like, well, that's fucked up. So I write him an email and I'm like, dude, like would have been really nice to, if, if you would have had the professional courtesy to like tell me beforehand instead of having to find out like on your website, good luck with your disco rock band, like the end. And then like five minutes later, I get an email back, you know, like, come on, Brandon, no need to be like, like my first email back ever. It's like, <laughs> yeah. No need to be like that. You know, hopefully we'll see you like blowing us off the stage in the near future, whatever. And I wrote like a, like kind of a fuck you email after that. And that was kind of a wrap. So um, stop playing music. And then, Why'd you stop playing music after that? 
just because I didn't like, I had negative association with, it wasn't fun for me anymore. I worked really hard on learning all their, figuring out how to play all their shit. And then like learning how to play all their like weird orchestral arrangements on like my, my keyboard, you know, like my one keyboard, like learning all the string parts and mixing all these things together and doing little tricks and just invested a lot of time into something that like kind of blew up in my face and I felt like an idiot, you know? Uh, and I just didn't feel like music didn't feel fun to me. And then at the same time, like I'm reading all these, uh, <laughs> things about like how you bonus whore online. I don't know if you're familiar, <laughs> if you, if you remember that. I do. I do. A phrase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, this, I'm not, I don't know if this still exists now, but back then, like there was like the step-by-step guide to bonus whoring where like, uh, that's what it was like called or whatever. And uh, they would just kind of show you who would, who would do the match deposits. And it's like, okay, you can get like, start out here and they'll do a 51 and build your bankroll to hundred bucks and move it over here. And then they'll do a hundred match. And then you just keep like moving it from place to place and trying to like build your role. Um, at the same time, I was reading this poker literature that was advocating, um, timing the RNG. So you would like, this was, <laughs> this is the poker literature that I read back in the day. You would go on like lime torrents or like Kazaa or something like that. Kazaa was like a, a file sharing platform oh, God. for dinosaurs. Kazaa, um, back, that, that takes me way back. Yeah. yeah. It might download some questionable things on Kazaa on accident for sure. Um, so you like it advocated, you'd have a piece of paper and it would say like, these sites are set up to like, just keep the money flowing. You know, it was, it was like the classic uh, online poker is rigged like literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you document the hands you win and the hands you lose. So make a check mark if you win, and then like an X if you lose, and then follow these patterns. And then if you get aces, proceed with caution because that's a trap. They're just trying to take your money. <laughs> Unless you're short, and then then you'll win. You know, if you're short, go in with anything because like you're for sure gonna double up, especially if they have aces. Um, but so I've got like check mark check mark x x x x so i just like i would just like try to find the patterns and i just like <laughs> fold 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 like i'm just playing like based on like this you know morse code i have like laying in front of me on this piece of paper uh, i think i did that for a couple days uh you're like the guys in baccarat that are like they have their like all their list and their check marks and everything like trying okay. to figure it out <laughs> i think that's i think it's baccarat i've only played it once but you have like a piece of paper and they're like people are like keeping track of the way things are going down and trying to like find the pattern and beat the game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it sounds like that. So after, after that literature didn't work out for me, I just stopped taking in anything else. <laughs> I just cried. Um, but yeah, eventually I, I was making more money doing that than waiting tables. And so I just kind of stuck with that and then went through the, ringer with net teller seizing the money and then black friday and all these things and i'm just like fucking tragic so how how were you doing at that time when black friday happened like what stakes were you playing what was your you know what what did you think your trajectory looked like what really fucked me was the net teller stuff i i built like a little bankroll and then at, at the time i was like uh 
min buying at 510 no limit like for 200 and then i wouldn't rat hole i would just like stay until i felt like my image sucked and then i would leave so i make like a thousand bucks a day uh playing 510 no limit extremely poorly um and it, it was insane to me uh i'd never seen this kind of money i left it all on net teller because i didn't want to believe this existed and i was thinking about the recording studio i was going to buy and i was tipping everybody like that i you know just can't help still doing but um <laughs> it felt really nice at the time because i i that was new to me i guess uh just like you know giving the dominoes guy like 20 bucks every time or whatever i'm like yeah i'm, I'm good I'm like a thousand bucks a day over here or whatever <laughs> um this is never gonna end and then uh then that teller got in trouble for some stuff. And I think since I only bought in for like 200 bucks each time, I kept my online role really small and I didn't have anything withdrawn except for my like one month's rent or something. Cause you would just go to your grocery store and max withdraw the 600 every day and, or every whatever. I would do it like every two weeks and it, it felt like just so good. That's um, how like my little paycheck. Neteller was before Black Friday, right? Like yeah, that yeah, was yeah. when UIGEA UI happened like 2006-ish, something like that. Yeah. So I left all my money on there and uh, and then that got frozen and that really fucked me. And then I quickly busted the last of what was on full tilt. And similar to the Muse thing, didn't feel like playing No Limit anymore. I, I just figured I'd start. I just made like a dumb challenge to myself to like pay my rent with $5, start with $5 in each respective game and just figure out a way to pay my rent each month with a new game. Um, and then by the time Black Friday came, uh, I think I won the Sunday horse, which was like the big, the dream come true at the time for a, a mixed game player. Um, and like things were looking all right. And, but this, you know, maybe it, like 20,000 or something like that. I had more locked up when I was short stacking no limit. And then I just spent way too much time trying to pay rent, grinding $5, starting with $5 in a different <laughs> game. Like it was just yeah. such a waste of time, but it was enjoyable for me. So it was a fun challenge for me. So I just wasted a whole bunch of time. And by the time I like built like a semi roll, Black Friday happened again. And yeah. Uh, Again, I had all my money on full tilt because I don't learn my lesson. So I was broke again. And my friend bought my account at some loss or something, you know, kind of bailed me out. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started playing live from there. And you, you were in Chicago at that point, And then you moved to Canada after Black Friday? Yeah, I stuck it out in Canada for like half a year. I moved there during the coldest time like ever. So that was not smart of me. Once again, uh, there's definitely a theme. <laughs> um, yeah, just totally tragic. So I moved there at a very bad time of the year. And then I'm like, well, this place isn't for me. It's freezing all the time. So, uh, and I miss Chicago. So I just went back to Chicago and then, uh, but I had already, I had already played some live. I, I had at that point, cause I met Martin through Steve Albini who, and people who are familiar with me kind of know that uh, like that's my go-to like poker running buddy um we both played mixed games online and uh he 
gave me an invite to like the supporter game that he would run out of his studio at the time. Um, that was just filled with like, you know, music people that just wanted to have a good time. So we'd play like quarter, quarter, and then the pizza would come and then we'd play quarter 50 and it was great. And I would donate a lot. Um, cause I was the online guy. And then, uh, yeah. And I met Martin, Martin through, I met Joe Ingram actually through that game, which is funny. And then, then I met Martin and then I moved and, and came back and then Steve took me to Vegas and had our first world series and all these kind of things. And, uh, that's <laughs> first, I just want to say that is a hell of a backstory and entry into the world of poker that, um, having had, you know, a few hundred people on the podcast at this point, obviously very unique, um, entry into poker, uh, the muse situation. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Um, (laughs) it's a hell of a story. I mean, now looking back on it, it's a hell of a story, but I'm sure like while you were living through it, probably, uh, not so good, huh? Uh, just a good lesson, I guess. I definitely wished, I mean, there are lots of lessons to be learned, you know, obviously getting into poker in the first place, it's so much more than just trying to get good at this game. You have to fade like so many things uh, and it never ends. You're just always learning some new lesson and, and how to not have your money taken in some obscure way outside of the game, you know, uh, outside of like the, the fair game, I, I guess I should say. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in hindsight, I guess I wish I would have not been such a little bitch about, <laughs> about what happened with Muse and stuff with, with music. Uh, I mean, a lot of, I've been very fortunate, obviously, and I've met like so many cool people and I'm so thankful that, um, you know, I've met the people that I have and like, uh, our whole Chicago crew are just like fucking incredible and like so many people within the poker community. Like, I'm very thankful for these relationships, but, um, but yeah, this, this, uh, lifestyle is, or this environment that this game is really, really rough and music is such a pure thing. It's like, I've never had a bad time playing music really. Even, I mean, I was playing someone else's music, so that sucked. Um, but <laughs> So that the muse time, like, yeah, that, that kind of sucked for a little bit, but, um, it's just such a rewarding thing. You know, I can go play poker for forever and then like, it's, it's brutal and then come play music and it's just like never, ever, ever bad. So, um, how old are you, man? 40 now. Yeah. 40. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still time, right? Like, oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. We still have plenty, plenty of time. Yeah. 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 But yeah. So I'm, you know, a little sad that I didn't stick with the music thing or whatever, but it's whatever. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, 
and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I loved the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about bootcamp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Bootcamp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com bootcamp. Tell me about moving to Vegas, playing more live poker, going from, you know, the, the fish to carving out a career path. So we'll go this way. So like I was playing a lot of, uh, I was playing a lot of mix in Chicago. We were playing a uh, 50, hundred mix. And then there was a private game that will always be like, besides like the quarter game out of Steve studio will always be like the, like my fondest memory of being in a private game um uh this high rise 1500 like private game um i mean 
I like the high rise wasn't like a glamorous high rise thing. I didn't mean to say it like dickhead or whatever. But like, uh, <laughs> it's it, okay to enjoy uh, yeah. enjoy the view of a nice place. I think <laughs> it wasn't there was there was a really nice view, but like just the group of people were. It was such an amazing group of people. Yeah, it started. The mixed game community is small, so uh, and poker really isn't a natural. It's a good like career path for me from a create creativity standpoint. I suppose, um, trying to solve puzzles and these kind of things. Um, it's not a good career path for me from a, um, a sociological point. Uh, like I'm, uh, I'm a, definitely a good mark. I'm a, in general, and uh, I, ha- I feel a lot of like. I hate saying like, I'm a really empathetic person, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? But like, it does wear on me, like seeing people lose. It's not fun for me. Beating people is not, not fun for me. I enjoy the challenge, but, uh, you know, you're hurting somebody. I I don't like that. Uh, and the mixed game community is small, so I don't want to lose. And I don't want to like beat my friends. Ideally, like I just win a little bit from everybody and, like life, life is good. No one gets hurt. Like I win, like, that's great. But, um, seeing your friends lose sucks and I don't want to lose. So, uh, I was in a relationship and she wanted to go to LA to work on like modeling and acting and these kind of things. And, um, I thought the idea of going somewhere else and playing against faces that I didn't have like a, a emotional connection to, might be good for my psyche, I guess, and good for my game. Uh, so I started playing a commerce and I just realized that that premise was flawed and I'm always going to try to build a community no matter where I am. Cause I just need it. I, I need to have fun playing the game. Um, otherwise I just won't want to, which explains like all the dumb bullshit that I do at a world series. Like it's all just, it's just for morale. Like some days I, I, if I lose this tournament, I got to play like the fucking limit hold'em tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, no, thank you. So, uh, so I'm going to put on this bear suit and we're going to make a run, you know, run in this one or whatever. Uh, and then hopefully that goes well just to, yeah. So, uh, I go to LA and, um, you know, I'm trying to make friends again uh, with people that I'm at the table with. Not, I, I mostly keep to myself. I am very lucky. Like I have an amazing group of friends um, and everyone's really cool about like not guilting each other into how much time we spend together and we just keep in touch and we see each other. It's fucking great. And like, that's the best way for me to live life. I, I very much keep to myself like in, I'm, 10 world series of pokers. I think I've had like two dinners or something like that. I just keep to myself for the most part. Um, and then, you know, when I see my friends, it's awesome, but, uh, at the table making friends. And, uh, I just quickly realized that my, they don't know my reputation out here. So if something like, and I am tragic. So if I fuck up a hand and I think like, uh, I wrote a blog about one specific incident where I, uh, I'm playing triple draw and the last draw had happened, but I wasn't sure if there was another draw after the, the dealer didn't drop the deck and I didn't count the burn cards. Usually after 
a hand is dealt, the dealer, dealer will drop the deck. Um, and the dealer did not drop the deck, but you can also count the burn cards to see what street you're on. I didn't do that. And I was exhausted. So the hand was over. I, I was bluffing and I took an aggressive line. I was bluffing with an okay hand. And, but I was trying to like get other hand, like I was, I was betting the spot because I didn't want to turn my hand over. And also I could get like, I could also get like slightly better hands to fold too, um, rather than check. So the hand was actually over and it was on me. And I thought there might be one more draw. I, I, I bet he called and then I thought there might be one more draw. I wasn't sure. And I didn't want to turn my hand over because then he could see what my hand is and he could draw perfectly against what my hand is. So I tapped the table again to say like, I'm Pat just in case there is another draw because the dealer still has the cards in, in our hand. And he turns over his hand because he thinks I'm tapping the table to say like, you're a good dude, yeah, whatever. Good. Nice hand. So yeah. he turns his hand over and I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. I have that beat. I thought there was still one more draw. And he's like, no, you just thought like, I couldn't have you beat. And you know, uh, or you, you know, you thought I couldn't, you know, you thought I didn't have you beat or whatever. And, uh, or you thought I had you beat. You thought I had, you. sorry. Yeah. Woo, I'm still waking up here. Um, <laughs> that muse story like took a lot out of me. So, and I'm like, no, I, I want him to know how much of a, a moron I, I am. I could be like, yeah, I thought you had me beat you know, my bad, whatever. But I'm like, no, honestly, like I'm just tired. And I thought there might be one more draw. I didn't want to turn my hand over too soon. And he's like, you've got all these moves and blah, blah, blah. You know? And I'm like, oh fuck. Like I'm new to this place. Like they don't know that I'm just tragic at this point. Like I had already had a few good world series of poker and people will make the mistake of, I mean, people who play, people who've played with me long enough know that I'm horrible, but, um, but there's this misconception, I think by some that like, um, because like sometimes I'll come to, uh, I'll do all right at poker stuff that I'm like quick, smart and I process information really quickly and whatever. And I don't like, I process information very slowly. I'm thinking about a lot of different options. Um, I put myself in a lot of difficult decisions. And so like, if I, if I wanted to play like really tight, you know, I could play quick or whatever. If I want to make things simple for myself, but I put myself in weird spots. I give action. So I take a little bit longer and people get upset sometimes that I don't go fast enough or I'm not thinking quick enough. Or, you know, when I do something dumb like this, they're like, Oh, you, you should be smarter than this, you know, whatever, not the case. Um, and I, I quickly realized that like these people don't know, like my friends in Chicago do how I naturally am. So, um, you say, yeah. you say you're terrible, like in a self-deprecating way. Right. But like, you've had lots of success in poker and you've carved out a career. So, um, how, how do you think, yeah. How, how have you gone about that with, you know, the <laughs> believing, you know, like whatever you have a lot of room to grow or you're terrible or whatever it is. I mean, I tell myself that I'm not terrible because <laughs> I think some, <laughs> some self-belief is good, yeah. but like my identity is not tied to poker. And I think this is a really important thing for people who, to, who decide to go down this career path. It's good to be diligent about your study and um, put in the work, but like you see people who've been playing for a long time and they take a beat and they lose their shit or like somebody makes a bad play and 
they go off or you have somebody who's who just talks shit about like every single person you know yourself you and all of the people that you guys know like it's it's really helpful i find to since i know poker is not my identity i just want to be like i i'm very interested in a lot of things a lot of things make me really happy and ultimately i just want to be a good human being um yeah i think it really helps helps you navigate through all the people who try to bring you down who like talk shit about you you know like looking for adulation through your peers is like such an exercise in futility for what we do in my opinion and you're just better off letting everybody think you suck because i mean that's great then you get action whatever um and, and also like who cares because it's a fucking card game you know what i mean like what honestly my breakout series i guess when it was 2014 and a lot of the success i had was because people have these egos and they think everybody sucks and they don't think you're capable of something or another you know i got away with a lot of stuff like granted i you know i really explored some some spots that i thought were like were strong um they all they worked out like you know who's this guy like he's not going to do anything weird like i fold and when people like fold big pots playing a limit game i mean that's massive so um yeah i think honestly a lot of my success came from working against other people's egos really and um and and some creativity but in general i just think like if i could if i could advocate for something for like people who are interested in this career path it would it would just be to find happiness in the other aspects of your life and not and not get caught up in the idea of like of being of getting uh, receiving adulation from your peers or whatever like yeah uh nick howard tweeted a few days ago um he said projecting 99.9999% of your self-worth into a game that 0.00001% of the world even cares about good luck with the thumbs up you know and i mean yeah. that that says it very well right like we're playing yeah. a card game it's not the it's it's not so, so serious um at the end of the day we're not like solving world hunger here we're battling against each other playing a card game that very few people really even care about um and yeah it, it is a thing like people the poker community especially can be uh yeah it can be a pretty judgy and rough place if you're looking for validation from other people i mean there are some you know high profile uh, challenges and matchups and stuff like that that have gone on in recent memory where somebody's gotten creamed and like if if that's what you care about if that's where your self-worth lies in the public perception of you as a poker player prepare for some some tough goings like life is going to be quite tough for you yeah agree i think just in general like you know misery loves company kind of thing and like that misery can come from a lot of different places so when people are saying things about you i mean they might be a great poker player but they've got some stuff going on and they they want to bring you down um and there's also just like herd mentality too 
um, Helmuth is a good example of Helmuth is a good example for a lot of these actually conversation points, but like, uh, but I guess one in particular for this one would just be doing something different. Like when, when you, when you look, I'm Helmuth's had a lot of success, at, you know, doing, doing what he does and it's like herd mentality is to find the thing that does things different from how you do them and to, and try to drag them back down to your level, you know, be, be uniform, do all the things that we're, you know, used to everybody else doing. Um, and there's comfort within that. So in general, um, yeah, when I, I just think it's important to, what you said is great. What you said is great. I just, you know, find happiness within, I think, and, and understand that like, you know, yeah, misery loves company. And so and within our industry, a lot of people, you know, want to say things and, and even if they're a good poker player, you know, their pain comes from other places. Their pain can come from other places as well. And you know, people just want them to, to feel that too. So I think like, if you're going to systematically go about it, you know, another thing that I didn't mention earlier when you were talking about learning new games is like putting yourself into a tribe or a group of people that you trust and respect and that, you know, who are going to give you feedback and criticism, but are not, their goal is not to just tear you down and mm -hmm. turn you into a puddle of ooze, right? Like they're doing it from a place of love. I think that having those people in, a close group having proximity to them is another thing that like can you know, fast track you in in the world of poker and can help you learn and grow very very quickly totally do you feel like do you uh are there relationships within poker where you felt like you had friends who didn't want to to see you succeed and how did you navigate um those um, friendships that's an interesting question, and I'll have to think about it. Friends that didn't want me to succeed. I think that, so not within poker, actually, but with, so mine comes from like a high school friend that we were friends uh, from, you know, elementary school through early 20s. I, I think that like, I didn't realize what was going on, I guess, because of my maturity level that like, whenever something goes well, it's like viewed upon from like a scarcity complex of like, okay, Brad, like leveled up here. Let's kind of tear him down in some other area. Right. Um, so I haven't experienced it specifically in poker, mostly because like I said before, you know, I'm, I've been kind of a lone wolf throughout most of my, my poker career. Um, but yeah, the way that I navigated that was just invest a lot of energy into somebody and then <laughs> never talk to them again at some point when it became clear what was going on to me. And I'm somebody that kind of, uh, especially early on in my life, innately trusts people and innately loves people. And I'm innately uh, giving in those relationships with energy, um, time, attention, all that, that sort of thing. I kind of realized uh, as I've gotten older and matured that there's only so many people that you can invest that energy into. And if you don't watch out, um, you can put that into people who just don't want to give anything back in return. And in my life, whenever I have those relationships these days, it's just like kind of 
peace out, you know, like it's been, yeah, great. It's been great spending time together, but I got to move on. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess I've been fortunate. I assume, have you had people like that in your poker journey that kind of, it's like they're secretly rooting for you to fail or secretly jealous when you have any kind of success, I guess. A few. Um, interesting. Like, I mean, yeah. Uh, inside of poker and outside of poker for sure. Uh, I mean, I've been extremely lucky to have uh, an amazing support system within um, the poker community. And I mean, out outside too i guess i still have some friends outside of, outside of this way even though i'm 40 um and i don't talk to anybody but um <laughs> yeah i think friend divorces uh was a really important lesson for me too there were, there were definitely relationships that needed to um go away or they needed to be they needed to exist outside of like like poker can't be a part of it you know what i mean like it's i'm not gonna enjoy talking about poker with you or, um, or, you know, you just need to compartmentalize like this, this, this friendship in some, some way, which, you know, actually might not be, that might be a concept, like an unnecessary concession. It just might be better for it all to go away. But I, I, I don't know, honestly, but, um, I think that was really important for me. And, but overall, I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of people with a lot of different interests, which helps so much. Um, and people who are confident within themselves. And so they have no need to project that kind of, um, bad, yeah. ne bad negative energy. I, I, uh, I, I think poker is kind of fertile ground, um, for those types of people, just like the people that make it in poker, in my experience, um, are some of my dearest and closest friends and people that I love and trust. And that I know that if something happened in my world, that like they would be there instantly, it wouldn't even be a question. Um, and yeah, I just think that like, there's something that is in the makeup of high level poker players that whenever you're friends with them, you have a relationship, you have that trust, you have community that they just are just amazing, amazing people to be close with. Um, and I don't know, I don't have a ton of experience in other relationships <laughs> in the world outside of poker, kind of, you know, like, like yourself these days, but poker, um, my friends in poker tend to be just good human beings. Like I'm happy to be in the trenches with go to war, be there for them and know that they're going to be there for me when shit inevitably goes down. Mm -hmm. And even with like, even with people you aren't like extremely close with um, just like we discussed it a little bit earlier before we started our interview kind of talking about you starting your business. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the group coaching kind of situation and yeah, the CFP and, group and talking about uh, talking to other people who are doing the same thing and just the ideology that, you know, if you are willing to bring other people up with you, like everyone succeeds and like nothing bad is going to come from this. I think it just winds up being like an extremely productive approach overall in general, like that, that positive approach where you're like, you know, you help people, you cultivate positive relationships and everyone kind of wins. Yeah. And I think that 
I mean, at least in my experience, I, I've never bullshit anybody at the poker table either. Like whether they does, doesn't really matter. Like if they away from the table, ask me about an opinion on something, like I, I just always tell them the truth. Right. And I, I think that like, that's one way that you can kind of weed people out of your network. If like <laughs> your friend is somebody that's like, uh, uh, inexperienced player plays a hand atrociously bad or whatever. And they're like, yeah, you played it well. What could you do? You know, you just, mm-hmm. you're like that type of person. You probably don't want to be in your inner circle. And yeah, just think that like, there's a lot of value in giving to people. Um, not that you have to like give them all the information in the world at the table in front of everybody or anything like that, but just being like authentic, genuine to a fellow human being. I think it's, it's a, good thing to do at the poker table. And yeah, I think it, it, it does lead to really genuine good relationships because I think other players, poker players, people who have high empathy pick up on that sort of thing and you just kind of connect. You're just kind of drawn to each other. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It is important though to like, to have, it's important to have like a few characters though. Like, like, I thought it'd be fun to like start a, a Twitter thread called like bad old head advice. You need like, you need like the dude who's been there, who's been playing for like 40 years, who, 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 who you lose. And then he goes, hey, come on, Heggy, like just, just wash the deck and change this, change your seat or whatever. Everything's going to be okay. You need a couple of those guys. You know what I mean? Just to keep it spicy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so there's a couple couple talking points uh, before we wrap up, man. This has been just incredible, incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, first thing, popsicles on the website. Where does that come from? I was looking at your website. We got a we got a popsicles area in there. What's that about? I'm glad you saw popsicles. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's just there's not much depth to this one. <laughs> like, I enjoy popsicles. I enjoy a bomb pop in in particular. Um, shout out to Eric Rodewick who got, who, who found a nice bomb pop hat on, uh, on Amazon. I enjoy that hat. It's very nice. Um, (laughs) yeah, I, but I have for sure been, um, I have not been following up on, I've not been diligent on the popsicle on adding more popsicles. So I've kind of dropped the ball on that. Yeah, the people want popsicles. What the yeah. hell are you doing with your if life? If anyone has, yeah, if you if you if you're out there and you have a good popsicle picture that you think should be added onto a popsicle website page, please send them my way. Um, <laughs> I think uh, there's a there's an email address linked to my site, which is um, which is my and um, this is kind of vulgar. So like uh, so earmuffs if like you're not 18 plus, but if writing, if writing my name isn't if writing, my name is too much of a headache. You can also go to, um, world series of dick sucking.com or .net <laughs> and it will, it will hyperlink you to my page. <laughs> and then just click the popsicles link. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's great. Uh, earmuffs. I'm so glad I asked a popsicle question now. Um, Thanks. I, I don't think I've ever been asked the popsicle question, so I'm really happy about that too. Thank you. Um, unconditionalgiving.org. I oh, what a natural segue! <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. 
<laughs> if unconditionalgiving.org is too difficult of a name to remember. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is a uh, this is a charity that's uh, run uh, Steve Albini, uh, my my longtime poker running buddy, um, genius in all their other areas in life, aside from um, nice guy himself to broke. Uh, just his own turn of phrase for me. Um, he, uh, his, his wife, Heather Winna, they've been doing, uh, they've been running a charity that originally started under the letters to Santa umbrella where, um, you know, desperate parents would write physical letters to Santa, like, please Santa, like we need a blankets, you know, it's cold. We need blankets. We don't have blankets, whatever. Uh, it used to be that you go to the post office and you could pick up these letters and, um, and deliver said item to a family at your leisure. I think this doesn't, I'm pretty sure this doesn't exist anymore. I think they're worried about like predators. And so now this is, uh, these letters were delegated to certain foundations. Um, and then, uh, one of these foundations is the one that works with Steve and Heather. They've been doing this for a long time. And Heather used to work with second city, um, which was, was a prolific improv comedy spot. All the SNL people kind of came out of there. John Candy. Um, yeah. And, uh, during Christmas time, they would do a 24 hour letters to Santa marathon where like all the actors would pay the entry fee to perform. Everyone would be awake for 24 hours and there'd be like auctions and songs and interviews and, um, sketch, you know, sketch or improv comedy or whatever, uh, for 24 hours straight. Um, and, uh, the founder of, of, the of second city would match any donations of the year which was incredible and um that 24 hours thing still happens i think they're doing one in oakland as well one of yeah one of the ma the major um donators is also trying to expand this to oakland to help out some families in oakland anyways so so now there will be there they would go through these letters and then pick you know kind of that families families that look like if we give them a whole bunch of money and stuff like they have a really realistic chance of getting back on their feet and thriving relative to, you know, a situation that, that might get really dicey and like, you know, just lead to some bad stuff. So they'll be, they're really selective about uh, the families they choose. And then we compile all the basic needs and then gifts for the kids. And then, um, a good amount of cash on the side that's going to be given to, you know, one responsible person in the household, um, to look after. And, um, we load up these vans and then typically there'll be like 20 of us or something. We'll read the letter, um, for the family that we're going to go see, see what their situation is like. Usually everyone starts bawling when we drive over there and a whole bunch of us start, surprising kids with gifts and it's like extremely rewarding and 
oof, getting like, uh, yeah, getting a little emotional. <laughs> so uh, you can see an example of uh, one of the letters on my uh, Twitter page. Uh, I think I, I made a post recently kind of talking about this charity. Um, so you, you just click through the, some of the pictures and you can, you can see some of kids with the gifts and, you know, an example of the, some of the letters you receive. And it's really a beautiful thing. So Christmas morning, we'll all go out there and deliver presents and these kind of things. Yeah, man, that's, that's incredible. Um, it's so okay. cool. Cause some of the, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, there, there, there's one family, there's a, uh, the Midiat family, um, one of Steve's closest friends, a very good, a very close friend of mine. Um, but one of Steve's best friends I met through Steve, uh, he was in a band called Silkworm. Um, their whole family have, uh, they have a daughter, um, named Lila and, um, she's, I think she's in high school now and she's given every single, like she spent literally every Christmas of her entire life, like giving gifts to families, uh, on Christmas day. It's such a cool thing. So it's been going on for a while and it's really cool to see like uh, the dedication and the devotion. And I don't know. I, the first time I actually, I had been donating for some years. The first time I actually got to do it in person was, is there, there are so many volunteers. It's such like a beautiful thing. Um, but the first time I actually got to do it was a few years back. And I'm like, I just want to spend every Christmas doing this for forever. It's great. Yeah. That, that sounds incredible. Um, unconditionalgiving.org. Uh, do they raise money up through Christmas? Like, how does that, how does that work Are all year round? Like, does it what does it look like yeah so um thanks for asking uh heather uh quit her job at second city actually to just work on this full time and then um and then steve's got his recording you know his engineering stuff and his and he tours and all these kind of things so she's been working on that like full time uh, you can donate um whenever you want as little as much as you want um poker community is really generous and some people have stepped up. Uh, it's really nice to see. So, uh, yeah, whenever. And if, if you feel more comfortable going through me, I can get you a receipt. Um, I have some friends who just give it to me and then I, I pass it along. And how, um, how, do, how do they find you again? What was the, <laughs> uh, Oh yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the, what's the path? <laughs> yeah. I think the second path ought to stick out in their brains. Um, yeah. yeah. There's the, I need to check the website more honestly, but yeah, I, uh, social media is like the easiest way, I guess. Um, just find me on Twitter and send me a DM. It's open to everybody. I, no matter what, I have a hard time never responding to like a, a message. So, uh, I'll always check that at some point. Um, my Twitter is at, um, oscillator underscore WSOP. Um, and then if you have, if you just have Instagram, you can do, uh, at oscillator oscillator. Um, pretty simple, I guess. Cool, man. And if, you know, I hope to put that in the show page so that everybody can click through. And if I don't put it on the show page, because I don't put up my show pages these days, uh, send me, you know, feel free to tag me on Twitter, ask about the, um, the URL unconditionalgiving.org. And I'll also post it in my Slack community so that, you know, any, anybody can pitch in if they so choose, because it seems like a really, just like a really awesome deal. Dude, that's so awesome. Thanks. And I also want to give like a shout out to 
the DGAF community, um, a longtime poker player, um, just kind of goes by the acronym uh, DGAF. Uh, he, he has a, a podcast in the community that, I mean, I, I listen to this podcast like religiously. I just can't help it. It's like so unique and weird. Um, but they do, uh, they run like a little poker tournament called Binker for a Cause, where they, they pick a, a, a cause and um, they give like 50% of the proceeds uh, raised to charity in there. They had discussed doing it for this this event too. I just want to give a shout out to them. I think that's really beautiful and really grateful for this, this friendship as well. And yeah. super appreciate you mentioning this. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, DGAF, good dude, good dude. Um, played a lot of live poker with him, and it's so funny. His one liners are hilarious. Like the dry humor, I just love it. Yeah, yeah, same, same. Um, I, I'm still shocked that he's not telling people like what his name is. Um, trying to still be DGAF despite like being at the WSOP and <laughs> like running deep. And his, he has a profile picture now. Like, man, the gig is fucking up. Like, yeah. how long are we going to ride this anonymous train? Yeah. Uh, I think the line is a year, right? It's got to be I mean, like one, one more year. Uh, maybe like I, I'll take, I don't know. <laughs> I'll take the under on a year. I'll take the under on a year. Yeah, he he's just like squeaking it out these days. Um, cool, man. Well, it's been great having you on. I'm really appreciative of your time and your energy. Would love to have you on again sometime in the near future. And uh, yeah, I guess with that said, we can we can shut it down. You have anything left to say? I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, you know, how, how this new endeavor works out for you. Uh, keeping an eye on that. And then just, I don't know, everyone would be cool. <laughs> everyone would be cool to, to one another and uh, happy holidays. Thanks, Thanks so much man. for having me on. Yeah. Take care. All right, you too. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.